Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt. Yes, you are. I love that introduction. You know, Alan, when I first met Tristan Walker, it was way back in 2009. He was still the young dynamo who had talked his way into Foursquare and transformed the check-in app from a good idea to a really rapidly growing business. And now he joins Leadership Next as a CEO of Walker & Company, an unexpected health and beauty brand and the first black CEO of a Procter & Gamble subsidiary. I'm pretty excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. I've I've met Tristan once or twice before. I think he's really exciting, really interesting. But Ellen, we should also point out that what he's done is really rare. I mean, there were some numbers out a few months ago that show that venture-backed entrepreneurs, fewer than 3% are either Black or Latinx. So he's paved a path that not many others have followed. That's exactly right. And that's really part of his personality, too. You know, he landed on our world's greatest leaders list in 2019, in part for co-creating Code 2040, which nurtures Black and Latinx tech talent, but also transforms the cultures of tech companies who hire them to make sure that they're successful there and get them into that network that he managed to navigate, it seemed effortlessly. I know there was a lot of effort there, but he's really that person. Yes. And Ellen, I was very excited uh, when this was suggested. But tell me why you think Tristan is a good fit for Leadership Next. You know, in part because by understanding Tristan's story, we understand how people who are not from central casting, and you know what I'm talking about, can be successful. He earned his way into so many rooms, starting at boarding school, all the way into venture capital. And his success describes a very specific pathway that lots of people like him should be on, could be on, and or maybe you're not being noticed. I think that's a big piece of it. And I have to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if politics was in his future. He's always been looking left and right in ways that he can contribute to the community. I know he's he moved down to Atlanta and he's doing that down there. He has been working with the Atlanta mayor on a COVID response program. At one point, he mentioned Stacey Abrams when we were talking to him. So he's really, he's got his finger on the pulse of what's happening in the black community when it comes to voting and representation. And I think that is one of the most special aspects of his leadership personality. From the time he was a young person, he was thinking about what it meant to bring a community along with him. Ellen, that makes perfect sense to me. And while I don't want to give away the interview, one thing I will say is that along his journey, he has acquired no love for the venture capital industry. You know it, Alan. So we kicked things off by asking how the events of 2020, both the pandemic and the summer social justice uprising, has impacted his work. The pandemic is something that none of us would have ever expected, quite obviously. Um, but fortunately, we were pretty prepared for it. You know, let's remember, uh, you know, we started as a digitally native company, right? Um, as folks kind of come came inside, uh, they knew to kind of come to our website, getbubble.com, to continue to transact with us. Additionally, um, you know, as, as you are probably well aware, you know, we have a company that is majority folks of color. You know, as st some of the things started to take off in the summer, um, we were all impacted by that. But we were very quick to recognize that a company like ours can help acknowledge kind of the trauma that we all face, 
show folks how we can kind of stand firm um, in our values and pick a side, right? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, act, right? Um, you know, the thing I'd like to say in, to our team, particularly over the events over the past year, is before I'm a CEO, before you're a colleague or an employee, like we're people first. Uh, you know, I am a black husband, I am a black son, I am a black brother, right? Uh, father, et cetera. Um, and I think our leaning in with empathy uh, to our personness, um, not only as kind of colleagues together, but our consumers who are people too, I think made us not only well positioned to articulate with authenticity kind of, you know, the side that we're standing on, um, but certainly it was kind of an added plus for our business quite naturally because, you know, folks are trying to gravitate towards businesses um, and companies that kind of live their values truly authentically in the real world. You know, it's, it's interesting as I'm listening to you talk, what a natural CEO you have grown into, but you were an enormously successful student. You had leveraged all of the opportunities that you earned to increasingly interesting and more powerful roles and created that network that you needed to create. And yet you're still an outlier. As we're talking today, we were processing the news that Ken Frazier just stepped down from Merck, leaving only three black CEOs in the entire Fortune 500 universe. What, in your estimation, is it going to take to make sure that, that talented people such as yourself don't become outliers? Yeah, and I think that there are two ways to think about this. Number one, there's an inevitability. You know, I, I tell, um, I, I like to say, particularly with my core area of focus, there are three themes that I really like to focus on, right? The demographic shift happening in this country, right? right? Uh, and the cultural influence of folks of color, particularly black folks in the world. Um, secondly, the influence and importance of tech, not only on businesses, but also when you map it back to that demographic. Um, and then third, I love great brands, right? Uh, and everything that I've tried to do over the past decade and God willing, the next 50, really sit at the center of those three concentric circles. There are a lot of folks like me that are developing a nuanced view around the importance and criticality of this demographic shift. Every company um, in 20 years, when folks of color are the majority of this country, if they do not have a plan um, to serve this audience with empathy, I believe that they will not exist. Um, I think it is that critical it is that existential. Um, and that's where the, I think, inevitability kind of comes in. And I think the second part of this that I think is important is when I get the opportunity and with all the privilege that I've received over these past kind of 10 years, right? I have a ton of privilege, sold the company, Stanford Business School, et cetera. When I'm in these rooms and I have the ability to bring other people in these rooms, I need to do it. And I, I take that job very seriously. And you know, not only with my kind of being at Procter & Gamble, I'm also on the boards of Foot Locker and Shake Shack. I sit on the nominating and governance committees of these boards too. Um, so when push comes to shove and we need to bring on another potential board member, you know, I can you know, support folks who look like me to have those roles and positions. When we think about CEO, CFO, C-level succession, mm -hmm. you know, we can have a point of view that points folks to diversity. So I think the inevitability of the demographic shifts and the freight train load mm -hmm. uh, that it's carrying, along with almost this uh, kind of chain linked kind of celebration for the people who are in those rooms to bring other folks kind of within it, I think are going to make this a little bit better over time. I'd love to dig into that a little bit more because you are in the room and that gives you a, a, a unique perspective. We, we're sort of sitting on the outside and talking to people. It's been clear to us and it's been the premise of this podcast for the last year that something is definitely changing in the way that business leaders 
are talking about their business, are talking about their values, are talking about purpose, and are talking about diversity and inclusion. But, you know, sometimes people come back to us and say, that's just all talk. It's all talk. Right. You're inside. You're in a big company like P&G. You're on the board of Foot Locker, on the board of Shake Shack. You've seen the uh, how the entrepreneurial system works. Do you think we're going to look back and look at the last year as a turning point for these issues? I hope so. I mean, I, I had the same conversation 10 years ago, too. Right. <laughs> you That's know? it. Um, and there wasn't as big of a change either. You know, it's not up to me. It's not up to us. It's up to the folks that haven't supported us, right, yeah. to make this work. We can only do so much um, before those ceilings get broken, those glass ceilings get broken and others, right? Um, so I'm sanguinely <laughs> optimistic uh, that things will be better. But even if there's pressure against it, the inevitability of what's happening, right, with this demographic shift is going to force that to need to be true. Have you seen things in the last six months that are different? from what you experienced in the decade before that? Well, I think COVID has accelerated a lot for a lot of people. Just thematically, you know, when when industries are in chaos, um, there are tons of opportunities. When you think about the concept of the future of work, right, and belonging, now folks have the opportunity to potentially work wherever they want. Um, you know, if you wanted to be a part of a Silicon Valley company, you had to move to Palo Alto, which is incredibly expensive, right? Um, but to be able to work um, from Palo Alto or for, for a technology company from Atlanta, Georgia, I think opens up kind of opportunities for wealth creation, inside awareness as to kind of what's going on. And then lastly, you start to think about, particularly when I think about um, some of these young folks like Gen Zers, et cetera, this idea of um, the side hustle to complement the main hustle, right. <laughs> I think is an exciting thing for me. Folks are realizing how to monetize their uniqueness um, in ways that I hadn't seen um, even before this pandemic hit. I think the pandemic was a real forcing function for people to take stock of the things that they're not only good at, excited about, um, but their ability to build those things where they want to be. It's it's more pull than push, which is really exciting though. While I I'm also sanguinely optimistic about the kinds of changes that you just described. I, if I want to work for a cutting edge tech company, I don't have to worry about getting the side eye at the Koopa Cafe anymore kind of thing. Um, but <laughs> empathy at scale, to use a probably a, a silly Silicon Valley term, I'm not sure how that would work to make sure that everybody who needs to be um, brought on board to think about what it means to be welcoming and to build in some grace when we make mistakes because we're all gonna make mistakes. What have you learned around yeah. that? That's a great question. And again, I think um, this pandemic has really changed the way I think about this stuff. Grace requires space, right? Space to reflect. Yes. And controversially, I, I have suggested over the past kind of couple of months, I think the pandemic is going to create a crop of really successful culture-less companies. And what I mean by that is, is really kind of what follows. I think before the pandemic, um, folks working in the office together was kind of built on this very big assumption, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, that the people who are in the office like working with each other, like doing the same things that each other likes to do, and, you know, between, you know, let's say eight and, I don't know, six o'clock, right? Everybody's together doing the exact same things. So you don't have the space to reflect, to do the things that, um, you know, would help you and your mental health, that sort of thing. 
And I think the pandemic has forced that for people. Hey, go take care of your kids, right? Um, so I think the only way to get empathy at scale, right, yeah. is to provide or create these culture-less companies. It's it's very um, counterintuitive in a lot of ways, yeah. but you can only get there when you provide space for people to have that empathy. That's so interesting, Tristan. You know, we are working with Slack doing some programming and research around what the future of work really looks like. And they, they did a survey that showed that generally speaking, there are a lot of good things about working from home, you know, more control of your time, more work-life balance, but that on average, people felt less of a sense of belonging to the company they were working for. But then they footnoted that and said, this is different for underrepresented minorities. They feel the opposite. That's right. They actually feel more of a sense of belonging, not having to go to the office every day, which I thought was a fascinating finding. That's really cool. Fits, fits with your culture point. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, wow. I'm here with Joe Yukazaglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, we talked about technology adoption accelerating in 2020, but at the same time, it also seemed last year like there was an increased focus on people, on human capital. Can we hope for a future where we have both more technology and more humanity all at the same time? Well, Alan, I'm particularly energized leading a a large professional services firm where people are at the core. This is all about pairing great people with innovative technologies. It's not about replacing one with the other. It's allowing people to free up more of their time to do what humans do best. The technology is an enabler for great people to use their creativity, their complex judgment and decision-making skills. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that getting this right definitely requires a new kind of corporate leadership. I would say out with the autocratic, all-knowing CEO sitting in the corner office and in with those who bring vulnerability, empathy, humility. Those are such critical attributes to unlocking the creative talents of the workforce in such a dynamic economy. Yeah, it is very different when you're trying to get a group of creative people to solve a problem than when you're simply giving orders and telling them what to do. It requires a brand of leadership that places a premium on instilling values, instilling principles, and empowering people to be able to make those judgments on the front line instead of waiting for some checklist or waiting for some prescriptive order from corporate that spells out exactly how each of those decisions need to be made. Joe, thank you. Can I uh, back up for a second? Because you made the decision a couple of years ago to sell Walker and Company. You had built up these great brands, decided to sell it to P&G. And I'd like to know what was going through your mind right then. Do I keep building this company as my own or do I sell it to a giant corporation? How do you how do you weigh that? First of all, as a CEO, you know, well, my primary duty was as chairman of the board of Walker Company, right? Like I have a fiduciary duty. Um, to do what's in the best interest of my shareholders, my people, et cetera. The thing that sometimes people forget about, you know, why companies sell to other companies is sometimes you just have to, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that was the case for Walker Company. I mean, we had kind of great growth. The financing markets, at least for our company and our category, closed. 
And in order to kind of sustain that growth and kind of create to the vision and the mission that we wanted to, our, our best path was to sell to a conglomerate uh, that would help us kind of with the funding, research, and scale and platform to get our mission out into the world. And I had to take stock around in 2018 when we sold the company, like, what did I get into this for? And it was to build something with as much legacy as like a Procter & Gamble that was still going to be around for 150 years. And what other companies have done that other than Procter & Gamble? You know, there are some things that we are uniquely good at and authentic kind of messaging to our consumer, our ability to reach that consumer. There are things that P&G is uniquely good at. Um, they reach 5 billion people around the world. They spend billions of dollars in research and development, things that we wouldn't have been able to do for decades. Yeah. Um, so to accelerate that vision and mission was key for me, complemented by the fact that like we had to. You had As no a choice. fiduciary of the company, it was the thing that was in the best interest of the company, shareholders and people. Yeah, that, that gets to one other follow-up question, Ellen, if I can ask it. You ended that ex your entrepreneurial experience with a bad taste in your mouth towards VCs, towards the yeah. venture capital business. That was tell, exactly tell, what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> tell us why. What, what's, what's your beef against venture capitalists? I think there's, there's two things. And venture capitalists have an important kind of place in the world, right? Like there are just some wonderful companies that wouldn't have been created without them, right? So I, I, I don't want to kind of rank on them too much, but I think for me, and I'm, I'm speaking from my experience, right? And my experience may or may not scale, but from my experience, I think there are two things that got me caught up. First, you have to remember, venture capitalists, it's their job to be wrong 90, 95% of the time. <laughs> it's not a it's like No, no, I know. And, and, and those are the most successful ones, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's their job. And then you have to think, well, you know, am I right, wrong 90, 95% of the time? And the thing that I think is, is really interesting as you're kind of managing growing your business, it's, you know, I wanted to build a company that was going to be around 150 years from now. But if you're a venture capitalist, you want to you know, get your return inside of 10 years. So you got to return that fund. So that leads yeah. to some interesting kind of board level conversations, right? But I think, you know, secondly, and, and the choices that you make. So that goes back to like the 90, 95% kind of question. For me, you know, I raised up to $40 million for this company. Entrepreneurs sometimes forget, and perhaps I didn't give this as much seriousness as I, as I should have, I wouldn't have known. You have to return that money. <laughs> and you have to return it at a rate and a return profile that might force your company to grow faster than it should be. So for me, and you know, to kind of wrap it up in a bow, my distaste around VC has very little to do with VC. We announced our acquisition on December 12, 2018. On December 13th of 2018, I, I say I have this epiphany moment where I realized what freedom felt like. Mm. Freedom to me, my definition of freedom is not owing anybody anything. Hmm. Like at that point, we returned our investors of capital. I didn't owe them any, anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't owe P&G. I didn't like owe anybody yeah. that was associated with the company. Great. And that was a feeling yep. that yeah. I refused to give away. Um, so for me, I thought when I was starting this company, I wanted to build a company that was a $10 billion company, et cetera. Only to realize that what I really cared about is ownership and autonomy. And that could be a different kind of company. Right. Um, so I think VC doesn't afford you that grace. Um, so you know, I tell folks, go get VC. It, it can be wonderful for your business, but know what you're getting yourself into and know what you're giving up. Right. And only you can make that choice.
Well, and I I just want to add a little nuance to that. That was fascinating. It makes perfect sense. And I could feel like a weight lifted off my shoulders just hearing your, you talk about your story. It makes perfect sense. But when I talk to black entrepreneurs and potential company founders, and we're in the middle of a reporting journey right now at Fortune on what it means, what it's like to raise money, raise money while black, is that oftentimes, very much like you, you are making the case for an unserved market. And you were not only making the case for an unserved market, which was clear business case, that there were lots of people with lots of faces, just like yours, just like my dad's, who were being underserved by the by the shaving and grooming market. And not only that, the inadequate products they could find were on some sort of shelf, you know, the, the, right. the, the ethnic shelf, you know, it was just to make it worse. And yet, when you are that type of entrepreneur who's bringing the specific experience of understanding this market, the conversations with mainstream VCs tend to get very insulting very quickly. And I think that's, if you're lucky enough to get to the point where you can find your freedom, it's because you've survived that gauntlet. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and any advice you have for people who want to be the next Kristen Walker? Well, I mean, the first thing I start in reverse, I think, um, why do you want to be the next Tristan Walker? You know, I, I think like a lot of people, yeah, I mean that, like a, a lot of people look at my story and I've been very blessed. Like we've had a significant amount of impacts, like in our industry, to the community, et cetera. But, you know, the financial outcome wasn't that successful, you know, right. like it wasn't the most successful kind of VC return outcome. And hey, I think we're, in, we're of, in media. We're in media. Yeah, we take exactly. it. I'm wrong 99% of the time. <laughs> That's right. But I guess the, the what I'm trying to get at is like, I just chose a certain type of path. And unfortunately, the impact that we have, I think, was outsized in the non-financial stuff way more than the kind of financial. But I had to go through this entire experience Right. To recognize that it's probably not for me raising all that money, having to grow a company that fast, losing the ownership for it, et cetera. But that might be the approach for someone else. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, uh, if we're kind of talking about black entrepreneurs, um, there's kind of one thing that I need to make clear. Um, and then there's kind of a suggestion that I'll have. Number one, I have to make clear what my privilege is. Mm -hmm. And I sold my company to Procter & Gamble. I've raised tens of millions of dollars. I'm a Stanford GSB grad. I got to go to a boarding school, one of the top boarding schools in the country on full scholarship. But like, don't get it twisted. I'm from like Queens, New York, like the hood. <laughs> like, That's right. But I've had my privilege kind of compound over time. So for me to kind of offer any kind of advice to entrepreneurs, it has to be taken with that privilege. And I recognize that not everybody has it as quote unquote easy as I had it, right? But the thing that I try to encourage folks to understand, particularly for folks that um, you know want to raise money, is there's a 90 plus percent likelihood you're not going to be able to. And then what? <laughs> right? And it, I'm fascinated by how many times like, how few people have the answer to that question, but when they actually go back and think about it, they're potentially less inclined to raise the money. Perhaps you just narrow kind of the scope in the interim, build the model, and then the VCs, they're not going anywhere. They'll eventually come and it'll just be more expensive for them later. And some people just want to go after that 10% chance, right? Which is fine. That's fine. But I think that there's some math behind this that you can respect at least. Mm -hmm. And in the interest of like your people, your employees, your co-founders, et cetera, it's important to have that plan that like just in case, because we know that there's such a systemic issue. <laughs> you know, entrepreneur is hard enough, but like fighting into that um, kind of systemic issue, it's great if you make it to the other side, but you have to have a plan even if you don't. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. So I, I want to just 
linger for a moment on the idea of privilege because it's so powerful. I feel it in, in my life. And I, as I see outlier after outlier, we've got the first, a series of firsts in Biden cabinet, including the vice president. You know, you're thinking about all the things that went right and how, to your phrase, privilege compounded in a great way. And still so many things could have gone wrong. And I think mm-hmm. that's the thing about maybe not wanting to be specifically the next Tristan Walker, but the the experience that I have had in life and that you have had in life in a very grand way is that a talented person was recognized and, and was able to leverage their talent and success in a series of steps, regardless of how dangerous the world was in a variety of ways for you, for me, for the people that we care about. That is the saddest definition of inclusion success I can possibly (laughs) come up with, which which leads me to the big question is we are now in a reckoning. I think it's pretty clear, very senior people, very majority culture, powerful people are thinking about what this means for their organizations, aligning to a bigger purpose of equity. What is your advice for our listeners, many of whom are new to thinking this way, for the kinds of steps they should be taking to make it meaningful, to help privilege and opportunity scale in a sensible way. Yeah. I think that there, there's the kind of social case why this is just a good thing to do as human beings, like supporting each other in this country, lifting everyone together as citizens, right? I think it's just kind of a good thing to do, but there's clearly a business case. Let me give you a, an example that I like to offer. Let's say Facebook were built in the year 2042, when folks of color are the majority of this country, right? Yeah. Let's say Mark Zuckerberg were starting it in 2042, or whomever else. It could be someone else. Would it be Spanish language first or English first? <laughs> right. Would you be on Android first or iPhone first? You know, like these are fundamental strategic questions that like, if you haven't thought about it, you're not going to exist in 20 years. So, you know, as I think about it, again, the three themes that are most important to me, demographic shift, technology's impact on it, and brands that kind of support, number one, it's hard for anybody to rebut against that. And then two, there are even fewer people than those rebutters who are actually doing something about it. Mm. And that is the opportunity. To me, I feel like those themes are, it's the greatest economic arbitrage of my entire life. And it's good to do, (laughs) you know? This, I'm dedicating my life to it, and there's no reason why no one else should. Tristan Walker, thank you so much for joining us on Leadership Next. I'm very grateful for your freedom and your focus. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 